Welcome to Desert City Church's podcast. Thanks for listening in. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are a new church serving neighborhoods on the edge of North Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Our sermons are ongoing conversations around a sacred text or scripture in which we find the story of Jesus. We hope they inspire you to love God and others more. If we can serve you in any way or answer any questions about our community, please don't hesitate to ask. You can find out more info at DesertCityChurch.com. Want to come grab a seat? I'm going to be honest, uh, I'm a little nervous about my message today, and I'm always nervous before I speak, but I'm especially nervous today because of uh, the subject that I'm going to be covering. And, uh, and so, like, I, I'm a big people pleaser, so I just want everyone to like me, and, um, which is, you know, a great role for, you know, if you have an opinion on anything. Uh, but, but today is, uh, we're getting ready to embark on a week that is pivotal in our country. And uh, so today's message is about politics, which there's this like collective groan, right? Like, oh. And uh, so I want to speak, I just want to speak into that today. And I, I want to start with, uh, there's, there was an obituary in the Richmond Times of a woman named Mary Ann Nolan. And it read this. This is back in May. Faced with the prospect of voting for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, Marianne Nolan of Richmond chose, instead, to pass into the eternal love of God on Sunday, <laughs> May 15, 2016. <laughs> a faithful child of God, Marianne devoted her life to sharing the love she received from Christ with all those lives she touched as a wife, mother, grandmother, daughter, sister, friend, and nurse. I read that, and uh, yeah, a couple things come, come to mind. Uh, it, it, it's almost like this, this year of tension we've all been living in, in our country, she's able to like verbalize it, give words to it. And it's like, God bless you, uh, Mary Ann, uh, for these words. But then we've also had a lot of people who kind of are upset with where we're at politically and think we wish that we had a third option. And there's gotta be an option better than death, right? I mean, we read that and she passes into death. Um, and uh, the family said, uh, who wrote the obituary said they, they wanted to use her life and her humor to help disarm a hypersensitive political climate. And today, as we, as we kind of consider what's ahead of us as a country, uh, I want to speak into this hypersensitive political climate. And a couple of things uh, to let you know is, one, I'm not, as, as a pastor, I'm not going to just tell you this is who you need to vote for or what you need to vote for. And uh, I, I'm not going to do that. As a church, I feel like we have a very uh, prophetic, influential voice in our culture, and, and, and I hope to pursue that. We're, we're, we're in the kingdom business, the kingdom of God business. We care about all people. And so if you're here, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, or if you're not even on a side of an aisle, you're out, out the door, um, when it comes to this issue, that's fine. Uh, we, we come together and, and worship Jesus, and uh, so everyone is welcome here. At the same time, I, as I talk about something that is so personal to so many people, you have to understand that it does come from my opinion and, and my bias. And, and I'm a churchman. I, I'm a pastor. I've given, I've given my life to the church. And so to consider um, kind of what God is doing in this world, I, I have these opinions that the church is the hope of the world. Amen. And so... Uh, 
yeah, it's a, it's a big deal um, for me. And uh, as we consider the role of, of government, um, I, I tend to be more of like a, a weak centralized uh, government guy because I believe that all the things that the government's solving, which are good things, God has called the church to. I think the church is called to take care of the poor and oppressed in this world. You cannot read uh, through our scripture without hearing that call. And when we consider something as big as global poverty, poverty in our country, the church has to have, uh, take that on as a responsibility and calling. And, and so we, we join in other people who are at work, and, and, and the government obviously needs to be involved in that, but that's something that, as the church is the body of Christ, it's just something we're called to do. I think like this, the issue of taking care of the environment, uh, that's a hypersensitive issue. Uh, for me, for the church, it doesn't matter um, you know, what, what you believe about like, science and global warming. I, I feel like there's these Genesis 1 and 2 callings for God's people to be stewards of creation, to take care of the world, to, to use the gifts that God has given us to manage the world around us. Um, when it comes to the refugee crisis, uh, one of the amazing things about the church is that we're global, and the church should be activated globally to take care of this message or the, the, take care of this, this issue uh, that is a huge issue. And, and I've, I've been to, to Lebanon, and I've seen the, the, the work of the church in Lebanon taking care of refugees. And so, like, so, somewhat selfishly, I have this desire to, to build up Desert City to become as big as influential as we can to get resources to trusted friends who are working as a church in Lebanon are on the front lines of this crisis. So deep down, I, I have this kind of thought that the church is the hope of the world. And yet at the same time, the politics of our country are so important in shaping kind of who we are as a, as a nation, where we're heading. And so like the message isn't just like to, to not get involved. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what does it mean uh, to pursue political engagement with the heart of Jesus. What does that look like? And as we read through scripture, and as we get to know Jesus better and better each day, what I have found in my life is that the message is much more political than I've ever assumed, but in ways that are different than I ever imagined. This, this book that we call the Word of God, it's much more political than I assumed, but in ways that are different than I ever imagined. Ways that are different than I ever imagined. When considering Jesus' message, he uses political terminology like the kingdom, talking of the kingdom of God. And this, this kingdom that Jesus talks about, this kingdom of God is this future destination where everything is going to be put back together. But it's also this present reality that we catch glimpses of here and now. It's a future destination, but it's a present reality. And the early church living in the Roman Empire had this understanding that we were citizens. We're citizens of this kingdom of heaven. We're citizens of this eternal kingdom where God is sovereign. And because of that, even though we're, for them they were citizens of, of Rome, they also had this uh, this loyalty to God and what he's doing in this world. And this message of Jesus of the kingdom means 
for us as citizens of this country, it's a, it's a reminder that we also, as followers of Jesus, have this dual citizenship. We're citizens of America, and yet we're also citizens of the kingdom of God. There's this bigger story. And so this plan that is in place is, is, is eternal, and it's more than just American citizens, and it's more than just uh, citizens in Syria, and it's more, definitely more than just Canadians, right? And it, all of us are a part of this, this bigger kingdom that is eternal. Hebrews 13, 14 talks about that we have this no lasting city, but we are looking for a city that is to come. There's this eternal kingdom that we are a part of. And so we uh, participate in uh, politics here and now, but with this perspective of eternity. And so as we talk about this today, I have, I have three concerns about this week in the future of our country. Three concerns that come, um, I think, as, as from my heart as a, as a pastor that I want to share as we approach this week. And the three concerns are, uh, the first has to do with hope. The second has to do with civility. And the third has to do with participation. So just kind of track with me as we, as we go through this. Hope, civility, and participation. Romans chapter 13 is where I want to teach from today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. And this is a, a, the Apostle Paul speaking to a church in Rome, which was the capital of the empire at the time. And he says this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one who is in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. Mm. Just imagine, like, the early church reading this, like, no. This is why you pay taxes. For the authorities of God are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. And if you owe them taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then pay revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. You read that, and if you're a good American, you kind of have like an alarm going off in your head. Just This is like submit. Submit to the authorities. Like, hold on. Hold on. Hold on here. Like obviously Paul has never been, you know, under the, the rule of a, of a tyrant. Right? Obviously, Paul, he doesn't understand what taxation without representation is like. And, and as a good American, you know, sometimes, sometimes you got to dress up as an Indian, take the British's tea, and throw it in the harbor, right? Like, we, we, like as Americans, like we, we read this and we think we're, we're independent. We're, we, we express our freedom and freedom from tyranny. Like, what is Paul talking about here? Does he understand how dangerous this language could be? And then you start to understand the kind of government that's established that Paul is writing in. In the first century, the Mediterranean world has been conquered and ruled by the Roman Empire. 
in the Roman Empire, as it started to consolidate its power, it stretched all the way from England to India. This is one of the, the mightiest empires the world has ever seen up until this point. And it took down other empires that were extremely powerful. It started off as this republic where it was run by senators, and then at some point, Julius Caesar gets involved. And there's this civil war, and they consolidate their power. I think Elizabeth Taylor's involved. It's weird. Uh, Julius Caesar gets the power and becomes the ruling emperor. And his title and his position is so powerful that people thought he was divine. This Julius Caesar was this divine sent by the gods to rule here and now. And when Julius Caesar dies, there's a comet that appears in the sky. And everyone saw it as a sign that this was, this was Julius Caesar taking off on this comet, ascending to the gods in heaven. And his adopted son, Augustus, takes over power. And they, they had these titles for Augustus. They saw him as the son of the gods, sent here to rule. And this requires our worship. So imperial worship was rampant throughout the Roman Empire. And you could worship whatever gods you wanted as long as you were loyal to this son of the gods who was in charge of the empire. There was this language that was used about Caesar Augustus that people would say there's no other name on heaven and earth that, by which we can be saved than our emperor. They would walk around and they would greet each other saying, Caesar is Lord. Also the maker of a great $5 pizza, right? <laughs> Caesar is Lord. There was this thought that this ruler was divine. And so when we read this passage in Paul, from Paul to Rome, the church in Rome, in Romans 13, we kind of assume, as he's, as he's using this language of submitting to the authorities, we, we kind of assume, you know, we're, we grew up in America, we have democracy, that he's actually endorsing this political person, Caesar. He's, he's saying, well, God established him. So, like, why would you ever go against it? But really, here's what's happening in this. What Paul is saying by this language that God has established Caesar in this position, he's saying Caesar didn't establish himself in this position. Caesar isn't God. God has placed him here. God is sovereign. And as easily as God has placed him in this position, he could remove him. This is actually subversive, subversive language for the church. It's not an endorsement. It's a reminder that there's a bigger picture, there's a bigger kingdom, and it's eternal, and there's this bigger God who's more powerful than Caesar. He's saying, God's placed him here, God can remove him. And so our behavior to him, we have to have this perspective and this reminder. Caesar isn't God. And it changes kind of the approach that this church started to take in this empire. And what we find is that this is one of the, the, the Caesars were some of the, the worst tyrants we've ever seen. Eventually there was this guy named Nero uh, who would use Christians as human torches. There was a, a terrible ruler named Domitian. And the Christians have to figure out how to navigate these tyrants, these rulers, and they do, and they flourish, and the people of God grow from this group of about 500 people to 40 million 
within 300 years. Because they know that God is sovereign, that God is in control. One of the concerns that I have, even as we approach uh, this election in our country, is where we place our hope, where we place our hope. We place a lot of hope in the leadership of our country. And what we find from this passage is, as Paul's talking, he's talking about honor and respect and being good citizens. And I'd like to remind all of us, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, president of our country deserves our honor, but our hope belongs to Jesus. Our hope belongs to God. And my concern is we, we've built these, these, they're humans. Donald Trump is a human. Hillary Clinton is a human. And do you know what they need is our prayer as a church. They need our prayers as we consider kind of what happens after this week, the day after, uh, life has to go on. Life will go on. And what happens is when we place all of our hope into one person, there's a misproportionate despair that sets in. And I feel like I've seen this from, from my friends from both sides of the aisle. We have all of our hope in this one person. And then when that person doesn't work out, there's a despair. And there's this reminder that God is still sovereign. God's people survived Nero. And the outlook of our country is probably going to be different, and it's probably going to change anyway. But God is still on the throne. Our hope is in him, not just in the president. It's always interesting to me uh, the things people claim about, you know, leaving our country if things get really bad. The message of Jesus and Christianity is entering into places of suffering and redeeming them. Jesus, God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus here. And so no matter what happens, as a church, I'm hopeful that I'm a part of this eternal kingdom because that's where my hope lies. My concern is that we've placed our hope in the wrong things. Second concern I have is for civility. Civility. And I would say this might even be a stronger concern, not so much for like who's running uh, for president. Uh, the concern for me is the way that we've started to treat each other as Americans the way that this uh, divisive, toxic political climate is like corroding our soul. We consider the future of our country. Uh, I'm much more worried about our democracy and our ability to be united as a people. How we interact with our neighbors, how we treat each other, civil, civil responsibility in keeping the peace as American citizens. My concern is not so much for who's running president, for president, but this divisive, toxic political culture that's been created. And it's all like heightened because of social media, right? Because we all have an opinion and we can all voice our opinion. It's so divisive. 
political cartoonist in, uh, from the New York Times, Tim Kreider, who can, uh, concedes that his job requires him to be professionally furious as a political cartoonist, describes a modern epidemic that he calls outrage porn. So many letters to the editor and comments on the internet have this, this is what he says, tone of thrilled vindication. These are people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by, and they found it. Obviously, some part of us loves feeling, one, right, and two, wronged. But outrage is a lot like other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out. Except it's even more insidious that most vices, because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure being outraged. It does something inside of us. We prefer to think of it as a disagreeable but fundamentally healthy reaction to negative stimuli like pain or nausea, rather than admit that it's a shameful kick we eagerly indulge in again and again. It is outrage porn, selected specifically to pander to our impulse to judge, to punish, to get us off on righteous indignation. And I thought about that as we consider our political climate. We love to be right and we love to be wronged. We're so easily offended. We're so sensitive. And when we think about what is the political process, we consider our country and our world's problems. And we're trying to solve them. We're trying to get better as a people. We're trying to progress as a culture. And it's become these petty arguments where we're just furious all the time. In all respect for our, our presidential candidates, if you watch those Debates, it just was like, it, it, there was this sense of like a lack of humility and maturity. And we think like, is this where we're headed as a country? Where is the civility? The, the things that made this country great that we could disagree with each other. When we look at the, the life of Jesus and his disciples, when we look at the 12 apostles, what's, what's interesting is you kind of start to understand their personalities and their identity. And Jesus' group is in his close group of friends, you have, you have one man who's a tax collector. And this is like a terrible thing if you grow up and you're an Orthodox Jew. This tax collector is sold out to the Roman Empire. He's making money off his fellow countrymen from the country that's conquered them. Super controversial. And then you have this other man who's a zealot. This other man who is very uh, passionate about restoring his country to what it, it once was. And they're on complete opposite sides of the spectrum politically. And yet they're in the company of Jesus. And when Jesus decides to transform this world, he uses this group of people, these disciples. And you have one extreme to the other. And he gathers them together, what could be called a hierarchy of loyalties where they're united around this common vision for the kingdom and what Jesus is doing in this world. And I think this is something that the church has the ability to do in our divisive culture, this hierarchy of loyalties, this kingdom that we're a part of that's eternal. We could sit down with people that we disagree with because we're united by Christ. And I think our country needs that. 
Tim Keller talks about this idea of tolerance. He says, tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. Tolerance isn't about not having beliefs, but it's about how those beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. This is what I think that we need in the character of the church to say, we disagree. Is it going to stop me from doing community with you, wanting to know more about your life? It's not going to stop what God is doing in this world through his kingdom. When I was younger, I, I read this author named C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, he's a, an old British author in the early 1900s. And oftentimes he would write like a systematic theology, like books like Mere Christianity. And there's other times he would write an allegory. He'd write stories and his theology comes out in these stories. And he wrote one book, which is very interesting to me, that I read at an early age, called The Screwtape Letters. Have you ever heard of The Screwtape Letters? The Screwtape Letters is interesting because it's this Christian author who's writing about what God is at work in the world. But he writes it as an allegory from the perspective of a demon. And it's like the senior demon who's in, kind of like, uh, rooted in hell, and he's writing to this demon that's trying to corrupt the soul of this individual who's living in England. And so he's writing all this advice about, like, basically, like, here's where the enemy's coming from. This is what, like, Satan's trying to do in this world. And it's, like, this real interesting interaction where he's writing about what Christians should be doing, but he's writing it from the flip side. And he says this in this letter. The, the senior demon is named Screwtape, and the, the, the young demon is named, named Wormwood. He says, Dear Wormwood, be sure that the patient remains completely fixated on politics. Arguments, political gossip, and obsessing on the faults of people they have never met serves as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue, character, and the things the patient can control. Make sure to keep the patient in a constant state of angst, frustration, and general disdain toward the rest of the human race in order to avoid any kind of charity or inner peace from further developing. Ensure that the patient continues to believe that the problem is out there in the broken system, rather than recognizing that the problem is with himself. Keep up the good work, Uncle Screwtape. He wrote these words, what was that, 80 years ago? And I'm sitting there thinking, I feel like he's writing about me, right? There's uh, fixating on, on these other people's problems. He's talking about the system that's broken. All the while, when I'm really honest, I'm the reason the system is broken. There's stuff inside me that is corrupt. There's stuff inside me that needs to be fixed. The politics have become a pretty good distraction for me to not focus on my own problems, to cast blame on everything else. When it comes to civility, we should seek the peace of our communities in the midst of the divisive political rhetoric that we see everywhere. Focusing on how we can fix ourselves. And it, when I consider kind of like where our country is going, we keep hearing about these millennials, right? The millennials are about to inherit the earth, this younger generation that's entering the workforce. 
And it's always like negative. And I was born in 1982, which means I'm a millennial. I'm one of them, right? I'm one of them. And here's what I, what I experienced from this younger generation. When it comes to the future, whoever's going to influence this country, just listening to the younger generation, I don't think that the future of our country is going to be influenced by lifelong politicians who are corrupt, who blame and shame and demonize their political rivals. I think that this younger generation is going to be shaped by the group of people who tell the more compelling story. The younger generation is going to be shaped by those who tell the better story. And as a church, as the people of God who are part of this historic movement, our story is one of an eternal kingdom. An eternal kingdom where God is at work bringing about love and healing and restoration and peace and forgiveness and redemption. And I believe that our future has the opportunity to be better than our past because we are people of the resurrection of Jesus. We're the body of Christ. And so as we consider these words from Paul about civility, how we interact with our neighbors, we seek the peace of our country. The third thing I'm concerned about is the idea of participation. Because I think because politics has become so messy, Sometimes the thought is like, I just want to retreat from it. I don't want anything to do with it. My vote doesn't matter anyway. I just want to avoid it, not think about it. And I think that is also wrong thinking. To participate in the democratic process is an unbelievable gift. Most people in all history don't have the opportunity to express their vote, to express their opinion. We live in a, in, a, in a window of freedom in this world. And my hope is that we would be very involved in the political process, engaged in a way that reflects the heart of Christ in our country. When we think about being citizens of the kingdom of God, this dual citizenship, we're also citizens of America. And I think that Christians, the church, should be the best expression of what an American can look like. And when I consider how much I love this country and consider the, the benefits of, of being an American citizen, I think there's important to think about the difference between patriotism and nationalism. And I think that we're called to be good patriots, and let me explain. Patriotism, patriotism is loving all of the great things about our country, that our country stands for. Life, liberty, pursuit, freedom from tyranny, freedom of religion, an economy that allows us to pursue whatever God places on our hearts. Patriotism is loving the things that our country does. Nationalism is loving our country over everything else. 
loving our country in spite of what our country does. There's certain things about our country that need to be changed. There's certain things about our country that we're not proud of. And so we don't blindly follow after that. We become great patriots, but not good nationalists. And I think as a dual citizen, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we participate in the democratic process because followers of Jesus should be the best example of what an American can be. A country's values and freedom are things that are worth living for, things worth dying for. I have this concern that participation will be lacking. And I have this hope that we are getting involved. John Wesley says this, I met those in our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them to, one, to vote without fear or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. My prayer today is that we would participate in the politics of this country in ways that are redeeming and restoring and loving. That we'd be a voice of good news in a politically hostile environment that we'd put our hope in Jesus and the sovereignty of God. And as we consider this Tuesday what's going to happen, we're reminded that we wake up on Wednesday and we go back to work and our calling as followers of Jesus doesn't change. We end each uh, sermon with a time of communion. If the band wants to come back up, communion is something that uh, we do weekly here and it's this sacred act that reminds us of what God is up to in this world. Communion, uh, at the table there are elements, the bread and the cup of juice. The bread represents God's body that was broken up, open for us. The juice represents the body, the blood that was poured out on the cross. We believe that this uh, God who loved the world so much entered into our suffering, broke himself open and poured himself out to bring about restoration, healing, from all the things that are wrong in us and in this world. And when we do this sacred act, we remember what God has done in this world and we join him in this work. And one of the things I want to do before we head to communion is we consider this pivotal moment in our country's future. I want to recite a psalm, a prayer, that I hope brings us peace, the psalm is Psalm 37. And so as a church, if you could rise to your feet and and read this with me. The words of the psalm says, read with me, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they'll soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord, do good. Dwell in the land, Enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. He will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, and your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. 
Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger, turn from wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. As we go to communion today, let's be reminded of this prayer. What a great opportunity we have as a church. No matter what happens, that we are the people of God that are on mission for God in this world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for our country. The freedom that we have to gather to worship. The freedom that we have to vote, the freedom that we have to disagree. Lord, we, we know this is a time of great anxiety. This is a time of fear. This is a time of uh, a lot of anger. And Lord, I just ask that as your body, that we'd be a voice of peace, that we'd be good news to our community because our hope is placed in you. Lord, I pray that we would be good citizens, that we would honor our leaders, that we'd pray for those who are in extremely difficult situations with extremely difficult decisions to make, that we'd be salt and light, that we'd be the people of hope, that we would bring about civility, so we give you this time, Lord. We pray your blessing on this week. That we're reminded that you are sovereign. That you are in control. We love you, Lord. In your son's name we pray.